Hello, and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 4, Episode 3, What Speaks to Me, with Stephen Christian. Because it's emerging technology, like nobody really knows where it's going to go, but it's good to sort of be at the forefront of, you know, all these different changes in an industry. How can I make a story that resonates with people but still has an impact that forces people to sort of question the experiences that people have that um, that they probably shouldn't have uh, because of the color of their skin and stuff. I'm really trying to find an opportunity to create a seamless, low-cost, immersive experience for uh, physical books. Stephen Christian is a medical student, a retired football player, and an augmented reality artist who's working with animation, podcasting, and comics. He was originally headed for the National Football League, and now he's working on his art and working towards becoming a doctor. He's creating an augmented reality app for Android and iOS that adds AR content to his existing adventure-themed graphic novels. In both mediums, he's developing fantasy and adventure content for Black children. His stories touch on difficult subjects like racism and police brutality. In the app he's developing, when a user shines the app on a page of the book, the app will unlock hidden content like miniature games and audio recordings and hyperlinks and animation. The graphic novel that the augmented reality app is based on is a web series he calls Island Fever. Island Fever is a quirky adventure webcomic. It follows Roscoe and a ragtag group of misfits as they navigate a ruthless world in search of everlasting memories. The books are highly accessible because they have an audio and an animated side of their content. So children can watch or play within or listen to the book with the app he's developing. Stephen spoke to us about this work and his hopes to make Black stories available to children of all ages, reading skill, and comprehension level. I loved what he had to say about weaving all of this and about time management and how to get big goals accomplished, including very practical tips for setting up your art space. Here's Stephen. My name is Stephen Christian. I go by he, him pronouns. I'm from the Bay Area in California. And I was a former football player. I retired from playing football after having two hip surgeries. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to play at the University of Hawaii and then Oregon State University. And afterwards, I sort of dove into the creative arts as a means of expression. And it provided some opportunities for me to, you know, make a living. And one of the things was I did a documentary on the on student athlete rights and the effects of college sports on on athletes and how how it affects them later on in life. From there, I've really decided to come to Portland and journey down the road of trying to become a physician as a you know a medical student and then on to like a primary care physician. Throughout that journey, sort of the the experiences for creating work in, in Portland as a creative artist and as a teaching artist and finding the opportunities with that in health education and in medicine, it's been very, very rewarding. You know, technically I'm a full stack augmented reality mobile developer. And all that means is I make augmented reality experiences with mobile devices that incorporate 
uh, all the senses to uh, improve equity in a lot of different spaces in, in art and tech. I would say that the AR piece is the new piece in the puzzle. Uh, most of it has been focused around visual storytelling and new media communications with video production. And so primarily like animation, video editing and stuff. But with the introduction of AR into my skill set, it's really expanded to, you know, me being able to uh, create experiences that people can access on their mobile devices holistically and them able to take those digital content pieces and bring them into the real world to expand that interaction and that knowledge. With being a physician, we're seeing a lot of opportunities with, uh, in the space, in the AR space, we're seeing a lot of opportunities in you know, medical training and medical education that I hope to continue pursuing as I become a physician. You know, I'm a retired football player and the, the journey from playing to, I guess, real life is, has been very interesting. I really spent my time trying to find myself for the past, you know, five years. And I've uh, stumbled across a few things that have stuck obviously with like comics and animation and really focused on community oriented and culturally relevant visual storytelling. And that stuff is really sort of defined who I am and defined what I do as a creator. So most of, most of my stuff, which is actually like really relevant now than it, than it ever has been. But a lot of my, a lot of my work focuses on really what the black experience is and how you know, black people in particular, or particularly kids, you know, that have like lack of role models in certain areas like medicine and business and, and seeing how they have those aspirations. I really explore what, what is sort of this little fantastical, quirky, whimsical story that I can tell with lead black characters that takes the essence of the black experience with dealing with racism and pluralist brutality and all those things. How can I make a story that resonates with people? And how can I make a story that resonates with people, but still has an impact that forces people to sort of question the experiences that people have that, um, that they probably shouldn't have uh, because of the color of their skin and stuff. That approach is, has definitely been sort of a, a long journey. And it really kind of came to a head, obviously, this summer uh, with everything that's been going on. And for me, I, I feel fortunate to have had the time behind me to sort of develop these stories out so that I know how to approach telling them in a time that is definitely pertinent. Again, for me, just like being a part of the Black community in Portland and going down those stereotypical trajectories for young Black men, looking at where I'm at now, it's just really interesting to see that this is where my life is, you know, turned to rather than being in the NFL. Island Fever is my pride and joy. I would say I started Island Fever as sort of a, a portfolio piece to try to get hired when I was working on the documentary. You know, I really wanted to hone in on the idea that with like the Oscars So White thing and, and the rise of sort of the concept of Black superheroes matter and all that, we, we weren't necessarily seeing a lot of adventure stories with uh, black characters in it. And I started this back in, I want to say 2015, 2016. So like there was like nothing. And so I, I really just sort of put pen to the paper and, and started writing out stories, uh, adventures that I, that were relevant to me, but 
but really spoke to the broader concept of, you know, what diversity looks like in, uh, in adventure stories. I've sort of used Island Fever as a, as a way to explore the different mediums that I'm interested in, whether it's digital 2D animation, whether it's 3D animation, whether it's actual physical comic books or comic strips or even 100-page graphic novels. Like the project really has lended itself to that. And with Island Fever sort of expanding, I would say it's really come into its own in a way that that I'm pretty proud of because of the inundation of emerging technology with it. And so now every book that I create in the Island Fever series ends up being a, a test of the extent of emerging technology, particularly like uh, augmented reality in it. In the, in the grand scheme of things, I, I make augmented reality comic books where you have the book in your hand and you can read it just like a regular graphic novel. If you have your mobile device on, uh, with you, then you could shine your phone over the pages and it sort of brings the book to life to where you could read it like a regular book, you could watch it like a video, or you could listen to it like an audiobook. It, it, it creates an immersive experience that incorporates the visuals, a little bit of the tactile dynamics to it, as well as uh, the auditory pieces that make it just really, really immersive. Fortunately, the coronavirus and everything has allowed me to focus on it a lot more because you know nobody's going outside and there's not as many distractions. Unfortunately, uh, I've had to shift gears from relying on uh, third-party sources to manufacture the books and, and create everything and, uh, and also promote things. Because uh, my, my goal was to go to like every bookstore across Portland and, and try to get the book in there, as well as do conventions. But all that stuff is pretty much shut down for the rest of the year. And so for me, it's, it's been trying to really hone in on like creating the product. And then when the opportunity sort of lends itself, you know, look at like digital avenues and stuff like that. And so it's, it's definitely been really interesting. One of the big things that I, I guess I try to undersell the project as is that all the books are made by hand. Because I make them by hand, I, I think it, it creates like a, a very unique experience for the reader because from start to finish, outside of the paper and the ink, all that stuff is created by me. And as a creator, I think that's just one of the more powerful things to do, especially with books, because you don't often uh, read a handmade book. It checks a lot of boxes on the unique scale <laughs> with, uh, with emerging technology and augmented reality. There's an app, and, and it, they're also made by hand. I do all my printing through the Seoul District Business Association, which is a community organization or nonprofit in North Northeast Portland. But outside of that, yeah, I you know, got a printer, got a, a binder, like a book binder. And then I have like a, a tape, you know, like a, a label maker that allows me to, to print all the information on the spine. And then I just, you know, design all the pages, illustrate, write, and put the whole book together in InDesign, print it out. You know, I have a paper cutter, like a stack paper cutter. So I put like the books together, put the spine on, and then I just start cutting the books. After that, I interface it with the app and then I just put it out there and people buy the books and stuff online and download the app. I make about 20, 20 to 30 books each round. And I've been logging like who buys the books and stuff. And like, I've been logging like how many books I make. On the book, there, there'll be like a letter 
and there will be a number corresponding to that. And so that, that lets you know like what batch of books I, I made this from and what is the number on that batch of books. Roscoe was the last character that, I've, that I developed in the series, which is interesting because he's the main character and everything's pretty much focused around him now. So I originally created him as sort of the, the antagonistic, sort of annoying character, similar to like Cartman in uh, South Park where he's like just annoying. And he was sort of a side character to my previous main character, TJ. And, and so I, I started to sit down and think about like, okay, when I'm looking at an adventure story and I'm looking at the character dynamics, what really speaks to me? For Roscoe, he's adventurous, he's outspoken, he's all that. And TJ is really sort of the, the soft-spoken, supportive leader or supportive, like dependable person that, that sort of Roscoe goes to. And so I, I started to develop stories out of just like what would happen with an experience that stays true to the character. It really lended itself to Roscoe. But more importantly, like for me as a, as a creator, like I developed both of those characters as sort of two sides of like the same coin for me. I have my own experiences that I, I really sort of revere and the people that I revere and particularly like, you know, with my father and my relationship with that and also uh, being an athlete. And so Roscoe is sort of the athletic one that didn't really have a relationship with his father. And TJ is the, is the you know, the, the home stable one that, that wasn't an athlete. And so I always, uh, with it, I sort of explore like what my life would be like in this weird, you know, fantastical way if I didn't have the, one of those two things in my life. And it's definitely allowed me to reflect on my experiences because I find myself in my life trying to find ways to be successful in things that I, I'm not necessarily well-versed in. You know, I have the idea of sort of the American dream, and I think that sort of speaks to Roscoe's sort of drive. But what that American dream looks like is up for debate. You know, it's very subjective. For, for me and for, you know, like other Black people, across the country, outside of sports and entertainment, that idea of achieving the, the American dream is, is something that you really don't know until, you know, you really don't understand, you really don't see the, your, your capacity in until you, you're given opportunities and exposure. And for Roscoe, he's, he's you know, really, really trying to put himself out there to get that exposure. Unfortunately, he doesn't have much direction with it and he's likely to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing just because he just doesn't know. And that sort of drives the story uh, because, you know, there's a dynamic where the, the world of Viltopia is, you know, plays on the idea of race and, uh, and plays on the idea that like there's the human race, then there's, you know, other races. The idea of different races interacting with each other allows for me to exploit that idea and talk about police brutality in a way that is very visceral but like doesn't hit close to home as it were if it was two people sort of attacking people this is the the beauty and joy of being creative you know being able to tell these stories that resonate with people and and develop characters that speak to me but also speak to the broader audience and you know see them sort of uh, see the growth in it you know and 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 that's that's been very great
so I am trying to get into medical school right now. This is my third time applying. I recently applied back in 2017. I took a gap year because it's just really expensive and it's really taxing on your mental health, your physical health, all those different things. I took a gap year. I applied back last year in 2019. I ended up getting two interviews, but I didn't get, I wasn't fortunate enough to make it to the other side. And so I'm currently in my third application cycle right now. And, uh, you know, after we finish this, I will be going back to writing my personal statement and uh, putting together all my work and experiences and putting together that application and, and scrapping together every ounce of pennies and nickels and dimes that I could find to, to pay for all this stuff. I was a health and wellness coach prior to the coronavirus and everything. Now I'm really just sort of biding my time to get back into, get back into the healthcare space. I didn't get my rejections till the end of the end of April, like April, May. And then I didn't get my feedback sessions till uh, last month and applications opened up last month. And so I, I really spent like, you know, three weeks trying to figure out if I actually wanted to apply uh, this cycle or wait till next cycle. And so it wasn't until last, last Monday that I officially decided to apply to medical school. And then that's when just the onslaught of just reality hit where it's like, I got to do this, 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 and this, and then I got to come up with $1,200. So for primaries, for me, I have like all the schools that I'm applying to. I'm applying to 30 schools, which is actually not a lot. You know, that's sort of the expectation. If you applied less than 20, then you're not applying to enough. It's one big like primary application where they have like your personal statement, they have your uh, work and experiences, like your disadvantage state, uh, statement, per letters of recommendation, all your coursework and everything. That's sort of like your cover letter. And then you send that in. I'm sending it to 30 schools, but like it'll cost me around like 1200 for that. And you just pay that price, can't write it off for any taxes, nothing like that. And then you, you hope that you don't get immediate rejections. And any schools that respond back to you, they'll send you a secondary. Uh, the primaries are around $45. Uh, the secondaries are around 100 And so then you have, a, you have another wave of applications where it's, you know, probably three to like seven questions. And they're all essay questions. So like, you know, around 700 words for each question. Typically, you'll get around at least half of the responses will, will come with secondaries. Then you uh, submit the secondaries, fill those out, submit those to the specific schools because they're all school specific. And then you pay that $100 for, for each one of those, which is probably going to run me another $1,500. And then from there, you get interviews. And so last year, I got two interviews. So I had to like fly out and do all that stuff. Uh, they're going to be doing those remotely this time. So I don't have to travel, which will save me money. And then after that, you just wait and see if you get in. And that, that's pretty much the journey that I've been going through for the past, you know, three years. There's so many different things. And, it, and it's really interesting to see how the coronavirus has sort of perpetuated those inequities where people in certain areas can't take the MCAT. And because they can't take the MCAT, you know, it's really hard for them to apply and make their applications more competitive. And then you can't get clinical experiences. So if you're not working in healthcare, you're just volunteering and shadowing. You can't even do any of the stuff that you want to do to show that you want to be a physician and stuff. Much like everything else, like 
you know, the coronavirus is definitely exploiting a lot of these flaws in these institutions that are not necessarily known for, for their diversity. I'm really curious to see how, what are the lasting effects of this on the, the pathway towards being a physician. We're going to be in a pandemic for at least the next like year or so based on empirical evidence. And so uh, I'm curious to see how, how this moment is going to affect so many industries over the next 10 years, you know, because this is a, this is like the great depression for us. The, you know, it's one thing that like people were dying and, and people are losing their livelihoods and stuff. And it's another thing to see, see the perpetuation of inequity and how that sort of like uh, furthers the gaps between people and communities. I'm just really curious to see like what, what those solutions, what some of the solutions will be. Hopefully like the work that I'm doing with like emerging technology and trying to get more black people and stuff into emerging technology and health education and training and storytelling and stuff. I hope that I end up being on the right side of history with this. For me, it's, it's just a matter of just really staying, st- sticking to my guns and, and, and seeing how I could sort of leave an impact uh, with the work that I do. I know what it feels like to not see, to not even be aware of something, you know, not even like seeing that it's, it, it was like impossible or possible. I just like, it wasn't even on the radar. Once things started to become more, I became more aware of things. Then it kind of came to that conversation and, and really that like a level of imposter syndrome that I think a lot of black people have is just, I'm doing this. I have interest in stuff, but will I get the opportunity to show what I can do? And when I do have that opportunity, because I don't see people like me doing it, will I be able to like rise to the occasion? You know, and that, that is like a very real thing that like, for me at least, you know, there's not a lot of people in AR. And so when I put something out, I'm self-conscious that, you know, it's going to break when somebody downloads it. Or I'm self-conscious that like, this is going to be a re- reflection of why there isn't diversity in the space because I wasn't able to see the project through and, uh, and live up to really the, uh, the expectation. The beauty and curse of, of Twitter is like, there's people that, uh, that, that feel that way. You know, the same reason there's, there's people that don't see the reason in making, you know, AR hardware cheaper, you know, or having low cost solutions for, for like head mounted displays and stuff like that. There's a sect of people in the industry that only care about enterprise solutions, only care about things that cost three to $4,000 for entry level points, only care about those, you know, corporate, you know, corporate branded sort of solutions for AR rather than sort of consumer oriented ones that are low cost solutions, which are really the things that I focus on. Yeah, yeah, so that, that, that's, the, that's sort of the, you know, one of the realities of it, and that's sort of just reflected in the diversity of the space, which, you know, is, is definitely uh, one of the things that, like, people are, like, talking about, especially right now. You know, I guess in the distant future, um, continuing the AR work that I'm doing as a, as a creator, as a developer, and as a sort of a teaching artist, I do a lot of, you know, like teaching for like 
how to get people to learn how to create comics and stuff like that. Now that I'm in the AR space and emerging technology, um, I'm trying to incorporate a lot of that skill set of teaching into, into the work that I'm doing to where I'm teaching people how to do the, the projects that I'm making and developing online curriculum around those things. And so that, that's one of the immediate things that I'm, uh, you know, constantly uh, building out now and, and putting out. And then hopefully as we get towards the, the beginning of the year, you know, I, I get an acceptance in medical school and, and I get to sort of, you know, close some, you know, close some doors that I uh, currently have open now and open more doors towards a, a different career that is sort of tangential to sort of the creative stuff that I'm doing. You know, for me, I think the, my role in AR is one to sort of like be a, a use case for why there should be more diversity in emerging technology. Really with the work that I'm doing, particularly with Island Fever, I'm really trying to find an opportunity to create a seamless, low-cost, immersive experience for uh, physical books. And the reason I want to do that is because, you know, books in and of themselves are the essence of, of us knowing anything and everything. You know, they're, they're the conduits for us to, uh, to explore and to, to learn and all those things. You know, any, any YouTube video, any, any speaker, anything comes from, you know, their, their ability to read, parse down information and, uh, and uh, transmit information to others. And so uh, the only problem is now, particularly with like the black community, is that, you know, illiteracy rates are really, really high. And that's because, you know, there's uh, stories that people don't identify with. People don't know, people just don't have access to the right books. Um, a multitude of reasons that, you know, are just, you know, uh, byproducts of lack of, lack of equity. And so I'm, you know, using, you know, creating books and telling stories to, to sort of get books in the hands of, of, of Black kids and uh, really set them down this, this road of, uh, of learning to read and, and appreciating uh, books. And so, uh, so with, you know, augmented reality and stuff, it's really sort of a lowering, the, lowering the bar of in, the barrier of entry for, uh, for early readers and, and people that haven't necessarily uh, appreciated literature um, uh, growing up or just in their lives. And so, you know, uh, even if it's like gimmicky or, you know, with bells and whistles, but really sort of uh, adding sound, adding, adding video, uh, really uh, incorporating more senses um, into the reading experience so that they, uh, so that they uh, are eager to pick up the next book and, and go down that journey again. And, uh, you know, so for me, you know, that, that, that really gives me like the most joy uh, when I, uh, when I'm, you know, developing and coding and, and animating at two o'clock in the morning, it's like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. And, uh, and this is the angle that I have. And hopefully, you know, I get that, I get to that angle sooner rather than later. I approach everything as I did, as I approach football. And so with football, there were reasons, there were specific reasons why you did uh, certain things. And uh, those were sort of, you built sort of tasks around doing those things to achieve the end goal of winning a national championship every year 
or getting a scholarship or getting drafted, you know, those were always like the specific goals and you sort of mapped out the trajectory for that. And so when I retired, I realized that like that part of me didn't retire. It, it was still there. And it sort of drove me to sort of explore other things and, and get that sort of fix that football gave me, despite it not being there. And so what, I, what I've done in my, you know, my creative career, my journey towards medicine and stuff like that is, you know, make a lot of lists. You know, I, I, have, a, I, have, a, I have a wall that has a dry erase wallpaper on it. And I have tons of uh, dry erase markers. And I literally have a wall that's just, that sole purpose of the wall is for me to write down ideas and mind map, you know, how I go from the idea to the actual like thing I wanna achieve. You know, it feels great to just be able to go to the wall and just erase one thing because I accomplished it. And, and I sort of just uh, continue to do that over and over again until, until I sort of reach the, reach the point that, you know, I could just, you know, erase everything off the wall and figure out a new goal and, and continue that. And then the other thing is, has, has really been time management and time management in a way to where I, I'm able to juggle different projects throughout the day and throughout, you know, the week or the month. And one of the things that like I, I think about right now is um, my goal at, during this was to one, find a way to pay bills and, and two, uh, learn a new skill. And so what I've done every morning is I've just blocked out a certain amount of time to just learn something new. And uh, so I'll do that, you know, right when I wake up, it will be from like eight o'clock to like 10 or 11. And that time is solely for me to just uh, learn something new, learn something about Blender, learn something about 3D modeling. Or if I saw a tutorial video on YouTube, it's like, okay, I'm gonna just watch that video and, and learn about that new skill uh, in the morning. And then once 10 or 11 hits, then I go, go about my day and I, I work on the different projects that I want to do. Those have been the, the two things that I really encourage other people to sort of like look into or, you know, uh, add, to their, add to their work or whatever is finding ways to, you know, have like a wall or a space or a document to just throw ideas, throw ideas on there. And then, um, and then try, look at that, uh, be able to, you know, get out of your head and, and look at what's in front of you and say, okay, how can I get from point A to point B? And then you just make lines and you try to, you try to connect them in, in ways that are uh, feasible. And then uh, really putting the time in and, and uh, blocking out your time so that you understand how, how long it's gonna take. And, and you know, make the, make the idea less of an idea and more of a reality uh, with actions. I hope you take the time to check out Stephen's incredible work. You can find it on Instagram at Stuck on an Island. S T U C K O N A N E Y E L N D. It has a bit of a unique spelling. And you can also see his work on his website, which is stuckonanisland.com. And island is spelled a bit different there. It's E Y E L A N D. This episode was sponsored by the Oregon Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, the Kenton Action Plan, North Portland Community Works, and the Oregon Cultural Trust. 
Thank you so much for your sponsorship. The episode was written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Matt Larimer. The music for this episode was written and produced by Standing On End. Check them out at standingonend.bandcamp.com or on Instagram at standingonend. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie. Thanks so much. <laughs>